This episode is part of our ongoing series with Queen's University Belfast, where we have the chance to sit down with an interesting student, professor or graduate once a month to hear and share their story. To find out more and listen to all the other episodes and conversations in this series, please visit bestofbelfast.org forward slash Queen's. Today, I had the absolute privilege of sitting down with Dr. Lindsay Broadbent, a virologist at Queen's University Belfast, who has made over 1,000 media appearances during the pandemic. In this conversation, we talk all about what a virus actually is, how they jump from animals to humans and what's going on there, some of the potential scientific truth behind things like vampire lore and other stories we've passed down throughout history, the importance of transparency and nuance in public discourse, and what we could have done differently around the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks so much for being here, and we really hope that you enjoy. All right, Lindsay, thanks so much for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. <laughs> I am uh, kind of looking forward to having hopefully a bit of a nuanced conversation. I feel like we're out of the, and maybe this is because I've just like stopped consuming certain types of media. I feel like we are out of the absolute fisticuffs division side of COVID where everyone's shouting at each other. And today I'd love to kind of maybe unpack and look a little bit backwards and say, okay, well, like, why did we all have this crazy reaction to this very crazy situation? And have we as humans ever done that before? Or is this a novel thing? So I guess the place where I'd love to start is in very kind of broad and general terms, like give us a little bit on the history of pandemics. Pandemics have really been around as long as humans have been around. So I guess there's a difference if we're talking about the history of pandemics or the recorded history of pandemics. Ooh, I like that. Because certainly recorded history of pandemics, everyone knows about the 1918 flu pandemic. We know that there's been pandemics caused by coronaviruses before. Um, there have been pandemics, you know, through history, you know, ancient Egypt, there's signs of pandemics even before that. Um, but I think one thing that a lot of people don't realise is that viruses are older than humans. Viruses are older than mammals. Wow. Viruses have been around since before kind of life forms emerged into bacteria or animals, mammals or fungi. Viruses predate all of that. Um, they are ancient things. They're not really life forms, but they are ancient. So as long as there has been life on this earth, there have been viruses. Mad. And with that, pandemics will have happened, um, not necessarily again in humans, but in whatever life form was around. And I think because of that, uh, we owe viruses an awful lot of responsibility and credit for how we evolved. And the, the the world wouldn't look how it does now if it wasn't for viruses. Crazy. So you said, and this is kind of like in my head where I, I kind of start to get tripped up because I'm not necessarily a science guy, though sometimes I pretend to be. Uh, you know, you say virus, a virus isn't necessarily a life form, but there is kind of almost like this like moving and living aspect to it. So what actually is a virus? Let's do that. Yeah, well, I think if you want to start an argument in a virology conference, then oh, is you this just, is what you ask. This is what you ask. 
there are some scientists that would say, yeah, that they're alive. Okay. And there are others that would say, no, they're not. Right. So really to unpack that, you basically have to look at what a virus is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, uh, and this is in no way meant to be offensive, but when I do science outreach with like primary schools, um, I try and explain it in the way that viruses are exactly like computer viruses. Okay. So a computer virus is essentially a bit of computer code that gets into your computer. It shouldn't be there, and it starts to screw with all your files. It starts to take over. It starts to do processes that you have no control over. A a virus that infects humans or infects animals is exactly the same. It's a bit of genetic code, so either Mm. DNA or RNA, that gets into a person gets into the, your cells and starts to basically take over the function of that cells. It starts to make more of itself. And then that's how it can pass on and infect other cells and infect other animals or, or, or people. So that, in in essence, is all it is. It's a bit of genetic coding wow. that's in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, and that's how it causes disease. I think when, when people hear viruses, especially more recently... It's always associated with a disease, but Mm. I don't think, and I think this is fantastic to discuss, I don't think a lot of people truly understand what a virus actually is. For sure. And they are incredibly simple little machines. Um, A a lot of people describe them as being on the edge of life, uh, so they, they can replicate. Um, they do, you know, spread from, from organism to organism, but they cannot move. They cannot think. They can't create their own energy. So everything that a virus is, it has to take from the host that it's infecting. So the only way it can make more of itself is to essentially recycle your own cells. So it takes all the bits it needs from your own cells to make more of itself. Uh, so it's a, it's a little parasite, but it's a parasite that cannot survive on its own. Interesting. So it's a piece of genetic code. Okay. What does a virus have to do to get its genetic code into our bodies in a way that it can parasite and suck up all the stuff it needs to do? There are thousands and thousands of viruses and they all have their own way of doing that. Okay. Um, so, for example, if we take the the example that everybody knows, COVID, which is uh, the virus... Oh, oh, sorry. COVID? <laughs> <laughs> it's spelt 2022 um so it's caused by a virus called SARS-CoV-2 and it, and it has so it has the genetic material inside it and then that's kind of protected by protein and then on the outside of that there's this layer of lipids and on those lipids are these things that stick out we've all heard of the spike protein and those things that stick out basically act as keys to be able to get into cells. Mm. So different viruses have different keys and they attach to different bits of cells and that's how they get in. Um, and then once they're in there, then they basically just do their thing and uh, we don't really have any control over what they do when they're in the cell. You just kind of have to let it ride itself out unless there's some magic treatment for it. Madness. So explain to me then... You know, you kind of mentioned that you described it as a parasite, okay? Is there ever an argument to be made that humans slash animals, let's say mammals would be the better way to say that, 
that mammals have a bit of a symbiotic relationship with viruses? Like, has viruses ever served us? Or do they do anything good for us throughout the big, big, big picture of, you know, human history? Well, if I told you that a fairly large proportion of your genetic makeup was a virus, then, yeah. Uh, So we are made of viruses. Right. Um, And this goes back thousands and thousands millennia really um, and there are certain viruses they're called retroviruses and these are able to like integrate into an animal's or, or, or an organism's DNA um, so through history this has happened time and time again the most recent time this has happened wasn't was like 10,000 years ago so we're not saying this is recent um, but retroviruses are able to integrate into your DNA and that actually then changes your genetic makeup. Wow. And then if you pass that on to your offspring and, and their offspring, that then is essentially evolution driven by a virus. And there's one, the one thing I really like to, when I teach virology, one story I love to tell is um, about placentas. Mm-hmm. Uh, any animal that has a placenta wouldn't have a placenta if it wasn't for a virus. <laughs> that the ability to carry live young and to carry live young for so long um, we need the placenta to do that. And the reason we can do that is because of tens, hundreds of thousands of years ago, millions of years ago, I, I, I'm not sure when, um, <laughs> one creature got infected with a retrovirus and that caused this new gene that allowed the formation of the placenta. So that is that is the only reason now that we have live birth and we had and humans can give birth to to these nine month old babies that's crazy so they can change us for the better and they can change us for the worse i guess on the flip side too yeah uh when each of these retrovirus events have happened in history um, it's thought that there was probably a downside to that. It may have caused an epidemic in whatever organism it occurred in. But the survival of the fittest, the, the, the creatures that did survive, went on to possess whatever was beneficial from that virus infection. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it has probably devastated creatures and organisms for millennia, but the ones that do survive have had this um, advantage and this adaptation that has meant that they can go on and, and procreate and uh, lead to to more evolution. And we're actually we're actually seeing this in real time at the minute. This is currently weirdly happening in is it uh, sheep? So um, scientists at the minute are currently watching sheep uh, that have this retrovirus infection, and they're. They're seeing how this evolves in real time and wow. how this virus integrates into their genome. We probably won't know, certainly in our lifetime, what the true result of that will be. But being able to study that gives scientists and evolutionary biologists a better understanding of how that will have happened in humans and in other animals. So define for me just again, like what a retrovirus actually is, because I kind of Got lost a wee bit. So a retrovirus is a it's a virus that can integrate into DNA gotcha. of an organism. Yeah. Not all viruses can do that, and I think that's important to yeah. say. Most of them can't. Retroviruses are really specific. So, for example, HIV is a retrovirus. But most, the majority of viruses we hear about are not 
retroviruses. They're just annoyances. <laughs> cool. So I know, you know, I'm asking for a lot of history here, but uh, you're the most knowledgeable person that I've ever had the chance to speak to about viruses. So you got to shoot your shot, you know. Uh, talk to us about some of, if not the earliest recorded pandemic. Like, what are we kind of looking at here whenever we look at human history? We'll stick to humans. So I'm not asking you, you know, what sort of flu did the dinosaurs have or anything like that. But, you know, yeah. in terms of pandemics, what are some of the, the first few ones that start popping up? Well, I'm not I'm not sure timeline wise, because, again, the, the recorded history is a bit sketchy. Sure. Um, you know, we know about descriptions of people that have had smallpox and other conditions. And it's very much described if they have visible symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, one that I think is really interesting. There was a we all know what measles is. Very common virus. We think measles evolved tens of thousands of years ago from a virus that used to infect cattle. Um, and when humans started to farm and they started to live closer to their farms and they started to live closer to cattle and agriculture became a thing, uh, we think that's when this this virus, which is similar to a virus called rinderpest, which is an animal virus, um, it kind of jumped to humans mm. and that's when we started to see measles. So that's certainly one of the oldest ones I teach about. There are, as I say, <laughs> ones that are ancient. Yeah. Um, but that is one. And I think uh, obviously global warming, awful. Um, but one of the interesting things with while the permafrosts are melting, mm-hmm. um, scientists are going and taking samples of things and they're actually finding ancient viruses. Wow. Uh, which has been held on ice. Yeah. In one aspect, terrifying. Yeah, it sounds like the start of like a supervillain origin yeah. story, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully the scientists will get to play the good guy in that film. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, we, we, we may still be uncovering viruses that have caused diseases in the past we may not know mm. everything that exists um and we're we are still discovering viruses all the time yeah but yeah in terms of in terms of those ancient pandemics um i i, I couldn't tell you what the oldest sure. one is well something that i would like to j- jump into and i didn't expect to do this today talk to me about the jump between animals to humans Right. So I'm a virus. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm floating around. I'm infecting cows. I'm doing my thing. I'm replicating. I'm being a parasite. How do I then, as an entrepreneurial, ambitious virus, like branch out into humanoids? It's uh, it's sheer luck. Really? Which, yeah. Um, or or un- bad luck if you're the <laughs> if you're the creature it's infecting. So. When we when we say a virus jumps from an animal to a human, it's called zoonosis. So, um, zoo is in zoo. Zoo is in animal. Okay, zoo, yeah, cool. So a zoonosis. So that that actually happens all the time, but we just never hear about it. So there are viruses that will jump into a person all the time, but we call those dead end events. So the person may not experience any disease. Or the virus may infect that person, but it can't adapt and it can't do anything else. So then it just disappears. It can't infect more people. Um, The worrying thing is when a virus just happens to infect the right person Mm. that has the right genetics and the right circumstances that allow that virus to mutate in a way that it can then be released and infect more people. Um, and that is actually incredibly rare. It doesn't happen often. 
uh, when it does happen, this, we we get 2020. <laughs> um, and it's it's definitely something that more research needs done on. Yeah. Um, there are groups of viruses, and I, I think this is really cool. They're called virus hunters. Um, I'm pretty sure they gave themselves that nickname. Oh, yeah, of course, it's very you, cool. You would. Yeah. Uh, they go out and they look at viruses that exist in animals and in animals that are most likely to cause these zoonoses. So things like bats. Um, and uh, yeah, <laughs> I did. I, I said it. The bats. good old bats. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they actually look to see what ones are most likely to cause a zoonosis? Can you preempt that and can you stop that? Um, and obviously that kind of research is fairly controversial now because yep. people would be worried about that happening. Yep. Uh, from my point of view, surely it's better to be prepared and know what might be out there rather than be surprised by it if it does happen. Um, but they, yeah, they have a really interesting job. Not one I would like. I'm not sure I'd like to go to a rainforest and the start catching cave. bats. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll stick to the lab. Yeah. yeah. Well, what is it about bats? Why are bats uh, prime candidates for zoonosis? They're just weird creatures. Yeah. They're, they're just absolute freaks. Yeah. Wild cards. You don't know I, what they're going to do. <laughs> um, they, they have weird immune systems, which... Uh, means they can be infected by lots of viruses but not be affected by them right um there is just when i started my phd actually there was a paper published that a group of these virus hunters went out and they identified 98 brand new viruses that had never been seen anywhere else in these bats <laughs> and it wasn't terrifying. just all viruses it was viruses from one kind of family yeah one species group of virus as it were um, like almost a hundred viruses. I was like, right, well, <laughs> time to make a new uh, textbook. <laughs> so it's yeah, they are they are odd. If you want to find a new virus, looking about crazy. It reminds me of something. This is kind of folklore, so you know I'm not going to stake my my name on it. But I remember hearing something I mentioned to you off air. Like we used to live in uh, Manhattan. And they did a study and it was like they found like types of bacteria on the subway that have never been found anywhere else. You're just like, ah, no, yeah. not okay. Yeah, yeah, no. Well, that's probably because humans are gross. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I guess bats are similar. They are the subway dwellers of the trees. Yeah, yeah. In the caves. That's, yeah. I think that's the name of your textbook. Subway so, dweller of the trees. There you go. That's my, uh, that'll be my first album name. It's a good band name. There's a good name, yeah. There's like a, yeah, Sick Bats or something. Um, so, these virus hunters, it's a little bit like trying to find the needle in a haystack because you're finding lots and lots of hay, but like, you, do you have any way to predict like, what is just a random bat virus that will just not come to anything? And that one tiny needle, it's like, oh my goodness, this is COVID-19. It's not even like trying to find a needle in a haystack. It's like trying to find a needle in a pile of needles. Because <laughs> they're, they're all viruses. Yeah. So it's how do you distinguish which one virus might be more of a threat than other viruses when they all are essentially doing something very similar. Um, so they all have potential? They do. Okay. Or, or certainly a lot of them have potential. Yeah. Um, and it's looking at the ones that have the most potential. So it would be like <laughs> if they were to identify, say, a virus in a bat, and then they were also uh, 
they also found a virus that was incredibly similar that might be related in, say, a pig mm -hmm. or a cow or a horse, then that might give you cause for concern because that might then indicate that it's already species jumped from, say, bat to pig or bat to horse. So if it can do it once, then there's probably more likelihood it can do it again. Right. So, so you look at its CV yeah. and you're like, ah, it has a gold Duke of Edinburgh award. It's proven itself. It's, yeah. It could do it again. Yeah, this okay. virus has ventured out before. <laughs> it is the hobbit of the virus world. He's yeah. going to go on a little wander. Yeah, exactly. So you're, it, you have to kind of take it into consideration, the evolution of the virus and the mm -hmm. history of the viruses. Mm -hmm. um, it's a, a really cool job, but yeah, not one I would want to, I wouldn't want to be the person that would have to stake all right, I'll put 10 grand on it being that virus in yeah, the future. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. It's I, tough. It's tough. Yeah, very. Left field, but uh, I've never thought about like this way before. Like, is this why we kind of have like all the traditions about vampires? Ooh, so weirdly, uh, a couple of days ago, I was reading about vampire lore. Okay, Don't know why. perfect. Um, and it was really interesting because there was, uh, yeah, there is this connection between bats and vampires there's also a connection between bats and rabies and then i was looking at some really old science textbooks of descriptions of rabies um and one of the descriptions is that you lose your sense of self and that the in this old scientific text it said that a man cannot look at himself in a mirror when he has rabies so there is this connection between vampirism Interesting. possibly being a connection to rabies. Um, there is also stories of people that have been very ill with rabies that have wanted to drink blood. What? That have had cannibalistic tendencies, that have, you know, uh, only walked and, and only risen during nighttime because the sun has hurt their eyes too much. Um, so, yeah, I I think there is a, a virus vampire lore yeah. crossover. But I mean, I, I'm, I'm eating this up with a big spoon here because like I'm a big believer that like the storytelling muscles that humans like use throughout history, they're so amazing because there's just that like element of truth in it. Even the weird stuff, you're like, wait, well, that doesn't make sense. And you're like, ah, yeah. they could be communicating something here that they maybe didn't have like the scientific tools to explain at the time. So what did they do? They used their stories because that's what we've always done. It's like, it's like when your kids tell you, you know, certain stories about the boogeyman uh, and stranger danger and, and you hear all these fables and horror stories they're usually to keep kids safe mm. and i think a lot of that from the past was used in the same way but they didn't have the language to describe the science or the viruses or the medical conditions yeah so it was easier to tell people to avoid bats because it might be a vampire mm -hmm. than to avoid bats because they might have however many <laughs> yeah. hundreds of viruses. Listen here, Jimmy. Do you know that that bat has a hundred different novel viruses inside of it right now? It'd be a good lab. Don't go near it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Twilight would have been a very different book. <laughs> Why is Lord of the Rings your favorite book? Um. Ooh, I think I read it at a time when books mean a lot to people. I think yeah. those books you read when you're 13, 14. It's like that album you listen to when yeah. you're 13, isn't it? They just, they stay with you. Um, and it 
it's just so immersive. It's an entirely different world. Mm-hmm. Like if you're talking about escapism, sure. you know, sure, start reading a book that has a dozen other languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and has an entire map system that you can look at. Yeah, I think it was just it was just immersive. It's awesome. So, do we have any recorded examples of how people have responded to different viruses? Yeah, I think certainly um, if we're talking pandemics, the the nineteen eighteen the the Spanish flu pandemic is one that a lot of people quote. Um, yeah, there's been a lot of chatter about the Spanish flu the last yeah. two years. And I think that the interesting thing about that is that the response then was really pretty similar. There were uh, campaigns to get people to open their windows. <laughs> there were campaigns to get people to stay at home if they were sick. They encouraged people to wear masks. Were we washing our hands by that stage? It's a very ignorant question to ask. We were, if you had access yeah. to to the, the running water and yeah. the soap and stuff. Um, it certainly wasn't as easily to come by as it is now. Um, but certainly that by that point, you know, hygiene was certainly known about. Um, whether it was that good or not, probably <laughs> a, another question. Um, but even, even back then, there were, and, you know, there are documented evidence of people denying the, uh, denying the existence of, of the Spanish flu, mm-hmm. H1N1. Uh, there were people that disagreed with the health advice and the restrictions that were imposed and the lockdowns and the mask wearing. Um, so that is nothing new either. Yeah. So sometimes I, I look at kind of conspiracy theorists and think, come on, join us in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, 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 you know, you're, you're a bit Downton Abbey era there. <laughs> um, get a new conspiracy. So it's, it, History repeats itself, yeah. and not only do the pandemics and the way humans respond positively, but the way humans respond negatively mm-hmm. has has not changed. Yeah, um, I think the only difference now is that everyone can share their thoughts with a global audience on Twitter or Facebook or YouTube mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, so we just know what everyone's opinion is now. Yeah. Uh, you know, you didn't back then. You only heard the influential people. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas now, anyone can be influential. Yeah, that's it's so well put. And you know, when you're speaking, I just kind of went back to. I always like I always like to do this with different conversations I'm having. I'm like, so I live in a small village in Northern Ireland, and I often like to think like, huh, how would this village have been a hundred years ago? And that would have been my circle of influence. It would have been the people in that small village that would have been my world. I don't have access to, uh, you know, the virologist on Twitter. I don't have access to the conspiracy theorist in Utah. No offense to Utah, it's first thing came in my head. Uh, and it's just those people. And I can be influenced for, for good or for bad within my small village, just as I can be on a global scale. It does just feel very different. It does. But I think what you've just said is, like, you've hit the nail on the head. Even with now, it's the sphere of influence that people have. Mm. Um and people create their own spheres of influence yeah. with social media, depending on who they follow. It's the echo chamber. It is. And we all do it. Yeah. I um, I, I teach uh, first year medics at the minute. And uh, we were talking about science communication. I, I, I do a lesson on science communication. And it was so disappointing that none of them watch TV. 
So mm. they don't watch the news. They don't read newspapers. Yeah. Any kind of media or entertainment they get, it's all on demand. It's all yeah. catered specifically for them. Yeah. So they have their Netflix or their Amazon subscription. They watch the programs they want. They subscribe to whatever YouTube channels they mm. want. They follow their friends on Instagram and whatever else. But they're like that in itself, I think, creates a problem. Because people aren't being exposed to other knowledge, other perspectives. Um, and I think that really creates an environment where conspiracy theories can thrive. Yeah. And I think, like, it's probably the rub. Like, what we've all seen over the last two years is you have different communities in their own echo chambers in their own world, you know, the sphere of influence that they've created, and that is their reality. They're like, this is the world around me. This is the air that I breathe. I understand this, and this is the truth. And then you have those two sides just absolutely clashing with each other. And both of them are like, what are you talking about? This is not the way the world is. And they're like, no, 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 but it is. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible. Yeah. it's it, Everyone's perspective is slightly different, and everyone's reality is slightly different. Uh, trying to counter that is next to impossible. So I'll be honest, I stopped trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I, with, with people that had conspiracy theories around COVID or uh, were very anti-vaccine, um, I'd always say to them like, all right, what, what evidence would you need mm. to convince you otherwise? Yeah. If I was able to show you one thing that would make you maybe question mm -hmm. what you think, and the problem is they always say nothing. Yeah. They always say, well, there's nothing that will convince me. Yeah. And at that point you realize, okay, this is this is a losing argument. I mm -hmm. can't have this discussion yeah. because you're not being open-minded. So if there's nothing I can show you that would convince you, mm -hmm. then fine. But this is the, the fundamental flaw of humans is that we often make decisions based on our emotions and our feelings irrespective of the facts around us, irrespective of logic, and even the most logical people in the world, there'll still be that side of them or that one area of their life where it's like the facts don't matter. It is like I am a dis I am a emotional decision-making machine and that's the way I'm made up. And that proves uh, very challenging whenever you're trying to conduct a nation's response or indeed a world's response to something like a pandemic. It is, and I think it's been an issue for scientists during the pandemic, especially those that have been advising governments, policymakers, because as a scientist, your very nature is to question. Absolutely. So you you rarely will ever get a scientist saying, I'm certain about something. I'm, <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm 100%. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the problem is when you say, yeah, I think this is what we should do, or on the balance of probability, this is what will happen. And then that creates that doubt in people that are listening to them. People that don't creates, want to think. No, people want certainties. Yeah. People want to be told this is what's going to happen. And because scientists can't do that, you know, nobody is Mystic Meg, then it creates that doubt, it creates that confusion, and it creates that gap for someone else to come in and say, well, actually, this is what's going to happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and on, on both sides of the coin, whether it's, think of the most extremes you can, uh, you know, the anti-vax conspiracist and the well-intentioned medical researcher, 
if either of them come out with a 100% guaranteed this will not fail, then again, there's this weird human part of us that are like, finally, an answer. And then, you know, then you just, you draw a line in the sand and there's your two tribes. Yeah, and it's, it's... I could probably talk about this all day, so um, it's lucky you hit record. (laughs) Uh, But I think it's one reason why a lot of people really hooked on to that theory that this virus possibly escaped from a lab. Mm. Because I think a lot of people would prefer there to be, okay, this is how this occurred. Yeah. You know, rather than it being dumb luck. Yeah. And rather than it being just a really bad set of circumstances mm. that meant that this virus was able to jump from an animal and evolve to infect humans. So I think it's that humans don't like the unknown. Mm-hmm. They, you know, we hate it. We're averse to the unknown. You know, what well, one of the three fears we're born with is scared of dark and scared of the, the, the darkness because it's that unknown and yeah. you don't know what's there. Um, and I think that during a pandemic is not a good thing because, you know, we were all learning as we went. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I wish I could say I think everyone was trying their best. I don't. Um, <laughs> but certainly we were all learning as we went. Yeah. I think it's it's tough, man, because I think people, when you peel back the layer, are just really angry. Mm. As in... There's a lot of anger, I think, that's been built up over the last two years because this virus has taken away loved ones from us or because this virus has taken away liberties from us or we weren't able to do X, we weren't able to do Y, the stress, all the chaos that's going on. And again, something about the human machine is just dying to point the finger. They're like, who did this to me? Like, who do I need to fight? Like, who do I blame, you know? Yeah. And so I think, like... The I, you know, if it is fortune, if it's just blind luck, it's very, very unsatisfying. But there is something that's so Moorishly morseless about picturing, I don't know, like evil Knievel Fauci in a lab in Wuhan rubbing his fingers together saying like, I know what I'll do. And, you know, I think even a lot of the division that we've experienced over the last two years, it's just that anger looking for an outlet. We want to blame somebody. It's yeah. the anti-vaxxers fault. No, it's the pharmaceutical company's fault. No, it's, and you know, and then it just gets crazy. Yeah. Shaking your fists at the sky and saying, why? Yeah. Or why? It's not satisfying. Uh-uh. There's, there's no, there's no one to punish for that. That's there's... a great way to put it. Yeah. I think we've, in some ways, in some shape or form, we've all been looking for somebody to punish. Yeah. And the reality is perhaps there is nobody to do so. Yeah, and you know we could get we could start discussing about uh, pandemic management strategies and, sure. and governments and how maybe they should be punished for certain things. Yeah, because there was that big thing you'd be able to tell me decades ago, or this is such bro science. I'm throwing at you, so please correct me. Where someone or a, a team of elite people were like, "Here's a pandemic plan that uh, we need to implement. We should all do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do it." And then literally nobody did it. It's even worse than that. Oh, no. <laughs> um, so a pandemic strategy was, was written uh, based on a coronavirus. <laughs> no! Oh, Lindsay. It was lost. Right. Someone on the floppy disk, yeah. Well, just. Floppy disk, hard copy. <laughs> Who knows? It was accidentally shredded along with other documents that they shred. Goodness. Um, yeah, they had this document drawn up. 
decades, I think, ago, years at least, and it was lost. So the entire, certainly UK, pandemic strategy was based on flu. It was what would happen if flu was pandemic. So back when, you know, swine flu and bird flu, they had discussed all this and what they would do. And a lot of what the UK government did was based off that. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's a different virus. Sure. It transmits differently. It has different levels of infectiousness. Um, you know, we, we know a lot about flu already. It's not entirely novel. <clears throat> so the... The fact that we were kind of working off a meh document wasn't great. Um, hopefully that will never happen again. Sure. I would like to think that. I don't know. His, a history has a way. I don't know. <laughs> uh, he's like, can you just store it on Google Docs for now? <laughs> like, just somewhere in the cloud. Yeah. Oh, man. My brain just opened up. You ever heard about digital rot? No. Oh, you'll love this. So, like... I think it's actually a guy Queen's told me on this. I think it was um, Steve Kelly's name. And he took a module and talk, talked about digital rot and how, like, you know, we just believe the cloud's going to save us. You know, all my photos are safe. All my videos are safe. All my theses and my podcast episodes, they're there forever. And he, no, this is what's in my head because I just mentioned the floppy disk. He's like, if I hand you a floppy disk today, how are you going to get the data off it? And I was like, uh, and he goes, right, if, okay, 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 if I hand you a VHS, how are you going to get the data off it? He's like, you can do it. Not easily. And he's like, what happens over the next 50 years whenever the file types change and, it, you know, it's harder to convert? And you're like, oh, my goodness, yeah, that's, that's tough. And he made the argument that paper is uh, actually a much more longevity and security proof material and form of technology than we maybe give it credit for. That was just a little random aside. I had to get it out of my system. Yeah. Now, now I'm just worried about everything I've got stored online. <laughs> okay, so knowing what we know about humans and knowing what we know even about our response to things like the Spanish flu, there's always going to be that portion of the population that is just, I don't know if it's a personality type. I don't know if it's, I actually don't know what it is. But my impression is there will always be disagreements. There will always be a subset of the population that by their nature are very, yes, let's do it. Give me some rules and I'm in because rules make the world go round. And then there's the absolute antithesis of that where they're like, give me a rule and I will even if I didn't care about the issue before that, if you give me a rule now, I'm going to raise hell against this. Is there anything that you think we could have done differently? Not even, you, you can go, take us wherever you want, not even in our actual tangible uh, response to the virus itself, but as a way to protect some semblance of the unity that we may have lost through this? Well, I think... Wow, it's a really interesting discussion. I, uh, firstly, I think we need those dissenting voices. I think those people that disagree with policy, with science, with decisions, with whatever it is, we need those voices because that's how those difficult conversations happen. Um, you know, I think we should question things. I, I think we 
we deserve to see the evidence behind something or behind a policy, behind a rule, whatever. Um, and I think that probably comes down to the fact I believe we should have more transparency. Mm. Um, yeah, preach that. People are more intelligent than the people running the countries give them credit for. Yeah. And I think people have a much better capacity to understand mm -hmm. rules and policies and legislation if they know why it's being done. And I think sometimes uh, certain policymakers will say, oh, you, you don't need to understand it or you won't understand it. Just take our word for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that is not good. Yeah. Um, people deserve to see the evidence and the research and the whatever it is. Um, and this is this goes beyond science. I think this goes for kind of all of society and, and societal life. Th this should be uh, something that underpins every decision. Um, and yeah, I just, I, I really want more transparency. Um, I think that would go a long way mm -hmm. to... At least then if you have people that disagree or conspiracy theorists or whatever, you can point to it and be like, but look, we are being transparent. You know, they can't be any more transparent. So I don't know where you're getting this information. Yeah. Um, uh, apart from that, I think, uh, you know, social media does have a role in this um, and... Who knows what happens if Elon Musk will buy Twitter? <laughs> but the the spreading of dangerous information, and I think that's the difference, is that you know you can you can discuss your own theories all you want, you can have debates and arguments as much as you want. Those are good, those are healthy. But when misinformation that is dangerous is being passed off as the truth and the only truth, that need something done about it. Mm -hmm. um, and deciding what that is, deciding what is misinformation that's dangerous, is incredibly difficult because it can't just come down to someone's opinion. There needs to be an empirical way to say, okay, mm -hmm. this is dangerous misinformation. But that cannot spread yeah. um, because unfortunately that does cost lives. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen that. We've seen that people that have thought the vaccines contain microchips or it's a 5G conspiracy, they have unfortunately died from COVID. Um, so it is, it's something that needs tackled, whether that comes down to the social media companies themselves or it comes down to, to government in intervention. I don't know. Uh, that's definitely above my pay grade, uh, thankfully. Um, <laughs> and it's one reason I will never go into politics. Uh, but yeah, there's, there has to be that line between healthy debate and disagreement and dangerous misinformation. And that is difficult because there's so much gray area in between. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, two things on the back of that. Like, I'm even thinking now, like, you know, we, we've started to have kids. We have our first wee daughter here and you know changes the way you think about things in the long game and even as you're like sitting talking I'm like okay I don't necessarily trust the social media companies to make the right call I don't even necessarily trust the government to make the right call 100% of the time so in light of that 
what can I do, what can we do to prepare ourselves and the next generation to really be able to decipher through all the information and come to a good outcome? Because I don't see the media landscape changing for the better, personally. And I'm quite an optimistic guy. But that's a cycle that I just think this is going to go in an even more severe direction than we already are. People love to talk about post-truth, but I think there's an element of truth to that. The second thing that I kind of just wanted to add on top of what you said was transparency. I'm all in. And as part of that, I don't think it's necessarily transparency, but it's an extra layer I'd like to see. And that is the ability for people to hold their hands up and say, do you know what? We messed up. We were wrong. Instead of doubling down, because when people double down, then it's we're ready for a civil war. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, we know you're human. Please act like a human and we will treat you like a human. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's completely right. And I think people that do put their hands up and say, hey, I made a mistake, they usually get a hell of a lot more respect yeah. for doing that. Uh, than the people that do double down, as you say. Um, And unfortunately, with what's been going on recently with the UK government um, and fines for certain things, and that that hasn't happened. Um, And they're meant to be leading by example. And it's not the best example to be setting for future generations, even the current generations. Yeah, yeah, I, I think what you were saying about media as well, the at the end of the day, the vast majority of media companies are for profit businesses. Yeah. They will publish what sells mm-hmm. and they will do what makes them the best profit. Same with social media, uh, whether that's print media, social media, whatever it is, they are for profit. Um, and I think because of that, it comes back to my I'm, I'm going to have to apologize to my first year medical students. <laughs> But it comes back to 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 them and the and the fact that they don't watch a variety of stuff, mm-hmm. and I think it's the duty of of people to to expose themselves and and their kids and their friends, families, whatever, to a variety of sources of information. Like, um, God, I am going to sound so old, uh, but like when I got home from primary school you put on Blue Peter mm. or Newsround or, you you know, you watched a bit of The Simpsons, which had yeah. so many current references yeah, yeah, to, yeah, to yeah, goings yeah. on in the world. Yeah. And prophetic things about the future. Well, quite. <laughs> um, so, like, you, you picked up information without realising it. Mm-hmm. It was that background noise that you kind of, it was like osmosis of information. Whereas now you go and watch three hours of YouTube you're you're not getting anyone's perspective except for that one YouTuber. Yeah, you go and watch binge watch an entire series of I don't know Bridgerton. You're 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 learning nothing. There's yeah. there's nothing that's adding to your view of the world. Um, and I think that is a you know I don't know. Future generations are not going to have the same experiences mm. that we will have had. Again, so let's go back 100 years to my village. You know, a lot of people talk about the town square. Yeah, The town square feels like it is 
alluding before our very eyes, that place where you go and you meet a whole bunch of different people that are of different opinions, different backgrounds, different professions, different religions, uh, you know, maybe not in this country <laughs> historically, but uh, different races, different languages. And it forces you to learn to coexist. Whereas now we live a very nuclear, isolated, echo chambery environment where we absolutely curate our sphere of influence around us. Yeah. And then we're like, oh, why why do people not get on with each other anymore? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's bonkers. So I don't know, like this is far off the realm of the discussion that we kind of set out to have. But like, do you... Do you think there's a way to, to like artificially like put that town square and that nuanced discussion back into life? I think a lot of it will have to do with education. Okay. Um, and certainly if I was, you know, being that politician that I never want to be. <laughs> um, hey, that's a sign of a good leader, isn't that what oh. they say? <laughs> I think the the curriculum needs to evolve a bit quicker mm. and i think sure it's all well and good teaching the three r's and the science and the 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 basic knowledge we need but i think there needs to be critical reasoning taught more i think there also needs to be like world views taught more i think we need that influence from other places and if you're not getting it from watching or reading the news and you're not getting it from, you know, chatting to the stranger on the bus next to you or the town square, then we need to get it from somewhere else. And then that the the easiest way to get that or, or to, to start implementing that is education mm-hmm. and building that in to the curriculum about, you know, current affairs and what's going on elsewhere in the world and how do kids feel about this? Because that's how they become well-rounded citizens. And yeah. and as we progress and as, you know, it's so cheesy to say that the world is a small place, but it is and it's getting smaller and smaller. Like we, we do travel, we have contact with people from the other side of the world so much more than we used to do. Yeah. That kids need to understand the perspective of people from the other side oh. of the world. Um, but yeah, I, as far as I'm concerned, that comes from, or should come from education. Yeah, awesome. Oh, let's put a pin in that. I feel like yeah. I feel like we could. Uh, that's like the the three R rabbit hole that we'll you know we could jump into at another time. But uh, let's talk about you because we haven't. Uh, so, like, why are you in this field? What like did you? When you were like we, did you set out to become a virologist? Uh, no. <laughs> do, 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 does it, I well, can't even say the name, never mind the do the profession. I, I was going to say, do six-year-olds know what a virologist is? But these days, <laughs> yeah, they yes. They now, yeah. Yeah, they all do now. Um, no, I think I was, I was always science inclined. Mm-hmm. Uh, like from a very early age, I was like, so I, I'm from Castle Rock. So we would Shall be at the beach every couple of days and I'd be poking about in rock pools being like, oh, what's that? <laughs> um, you know, I that kind of curiosity and that science or that love for science has kind of always been there. Um, so it was always going to be something I did. Uh, you know, I think even my parents would tell you I was always going to be in some aspect of science. Um Going to school and, 
you know, I don't know if this is just a Northern Irish thing or just a school I went to, but there were certain careers that were always suggested. Doctor. Exactly. Lawyer. And if you were... Maybe an accountant. <laughs> I went to an all-girls school, so there were no accountants. <laughs> but it was... It was if you were good at English and writing, then it was something like a teacher or a lawyer. If you were good at science, then it was doctor. Um, and I never really questioned that. Mm-hmm. So I applied to do medicine. Um, I applied, got a few offers of places to go and do medicine. Uh, completely messed up my A-levels. Um, <laughs> Mate, look, it happens. <laughs> it, uh, that's another topic, but like, you know, the fact that one week, if you have a bad week, uh-huh. yeah, anyway. Yeah I, oh, I, yeah, I did not get the pr- predicted grades I was expected. Um, so I actually, I went through clearing to get a place at university um, and I got into biomedical science at mm. Queen's um, thinking that, you know, if I still wanted to do medicine. I could pivot. Exactly. You can do that and then you can go on and do medicine. It gives you the good basis. Um, And I quickly realized during that course that it was the science I liked Mm. and the people side of it that I hated. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't do it. Um, So it was, yeah, it was during that that I kind of started to re-look at where my career, my future would go. Um, And there were some courses during that that I just that I just loved and one was cell biology and looking at science on that kind of microscopic level Um, and then infectious diseases and it was just that it was gross because they usually show photos Mm. but it was also really cool I was like right I could I could do something here to still do science still be on that periphery of medicine but without having to deal with people sure and that was what was really um, attractive and appealing. So I, as soon as I finished my uh, my degree, I applied for a PhD, started my PhD, and haven't left the lab since. Class. So it's a, it's not the most interesting of career stories. It's pretty much a straight road. Um, but I'm, you know, my mum does traditional woman that she is she has a phrase you know what's for you won't go by you so true um and i think she always says that and she you know however disappointed she was when i didn't get into medicine that was still something she would say um and now i think she's quite grateful because again castle rock small village um she gets recognized more than i do from the media i've done (laughs) because of the surname It's, it's quite unusual so she loves it she she has people stopping her, being like, oh, it's all Lindsay on the big news. Class. Um, so she's loving that. So she's fine with it. <laughs> this, so I, I went with a different opener. My planned opener was actually just like to, to play it off really casually, like pretend we weren't even recording yet. And I was going to do like, so like how many like uh, conversations about, you know, uh, coronavirus have you had over the last two years? That was going to be my, my opening gambit. How many have you had, roughly? Like media appearances? Um, so... Our fantastic Queen's comms people, they keep a record. Uh, so I, I don't know how many have been like original recordings and how many have been syndications, but I think at the minute it's over a thousand. Goodness great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. 
Yeah. So it's 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 almost been like another full time job trying yeah, to squeeze yeah, this yeah. in with the yeah. research. Um, it's been bizarre. It's been really odd, and I love looking at that list that comms send us because you know there's there's the ones that I know about, and then there are these other publications or media outlets that pick up the interviews you've mm-hmm, done. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love looking at the names. Like I was, uh, <laughs> one, an interview I did was featured in the Sacramento Bee. Oh, yeah. In California. Oh, yeah. yeah. Young uh, Farmers Association I was, off Amish, Ohio. <laughs> oh, yeah, I was just going to say, I was. I think there was one called the Tractor Times. Woo! Yeah. Come on, look at me now, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really interesting to see like where... What you've been in, because I, yeah. I, I have no idea. Like the, that's how media interviews happen; they get picked up all around the world. Um, so there may be some someone in Sac- Sacramento that read my interview, and I'd like to think learned a little bit more mm-hmm. about COVID or viruses from that, um, which is a bizarre thought. Oh, like it's, it's it's amazing and terrifying. Yeah, it's yeah. terrifying. Real quick. I don't. I don't need specifics. I'm not digging for specifics. Speaking generally, like, what is the difference between a good media experience for you and a bad media experience? Um, good media experience is when someone gives you the room to explain what you're there to talk about. They give you the room to talk. Obviously, within their you know ninety seconds, they have. Um, a bad media experience is where they're trying to get you to say something they want. Uh, and that always feels incredibly awkward because yeah, yeah. your words are being a bit manipulated. So, Lindsay, would you say that, like, anti-vaxxers are a risk to society? Is that what you're saying? That's what you said, isn't it? And you're like, shut up! <laughs> yeah. And it's it's happened to me. I've had a couple of occasions where I've done an interview and they've taken it entirely out of context they've edited it oh brother and that that is not easy to deal with but can you deal with that um it depends on the publication you can get in touch you can say you know this was not a what i meant what i said and this was not the ethos or 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 the vibe of the interview but they're under no obligation to do anything about it because if, if you said it, you said it. So scary, isn't it? It is. Um, and it's one reason I tend to do radio, TV. Mm-hmm. I don't do as much print media yeah. as I did at the start because it's so much more easily mm-hmm. edited and filtered and changed. Um, and I'm just a lot more cautious about that now. Yeah, it's tough. No, like, mad props to you, like, because it's, it's a tough game. Yeah, and it's a it's a very very uh, treacherous sea to navigate. So fair play to you for doing so. Landing the plane then ever so slowly. What would you say you're most proud of during your time at Queens? Ooh, during my time at Queens, um, I was asked to do a TEDx talk for Queens. Awesome, and that. You know, that's a bucket list thing <laughs> for a lot of people. Um, that will... Your mom's like, walk around Castle Rock with the wee badge. The wee, the wee TEDx badge. <laughs> yeah. Um, that will stay with me for a long time. Uh, but, I, I, yeah, it's it's. What, it's was, your, what was your title? Ish? I can't remember. Ish? 
it was something about science communication in a pandemic. It was it was about basically what we've talked, but I had to squeeze it into eight minutes. <laughs> um, yeah, it was just about the craziness of communicating science and how one day you can ask to be discussing molecular virology and the next day you're asked to comment on but. Nicki Minaj's cousin's friend's testicles. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it just changes so much. Madness. So, I got a wee bit lost there. Sorry. Did, you, the, an- did you answer Was that? it the testicle? The te- I was too busy thinking about Nick and Manati's cousins, uncles, brothers, testes. Uh, did you answer? What Most were? proud, TEDx. Oh, yeah, TEDx did. That. Yeah. Apologies. Yeah. Apologies. Um, but also, I think, just the the work I've done at Queen's, I think I'm... Um, Incredibly proud of the time I've spent there, the research I've done there. I'd like to think I've had a positive impact on not only the research, but on the students I've taught. Um, there have been a lot of them. And yeah, hopefully the some of my PhD students I've had will go on and have incredible careers and be Nobel Prize winning. And uh, I think that's weird. I think for, for most scientists... It would be more of achievement an achievement to have your student win a Nobel Prize mm. than it would be to win one yourself. Sure. So, uh, students, if you're listening, hurry up. <laughs> no pressure. Yeah. The bar is high. Yeah, I, I heard something recently and they were like, the impressive thing is not for you to do the thing yourself. And the impressive thing is not even for the people that you teach to do the thing. It says, you know, you're really successful whenever the people you've taught teach other people to go and do the thing. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that's very nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. No, and that's that's completely true. And I think that's, as as an academic scientist, that's what we're all aiming for. Mm. Awesome. The floor is yours. Anything you'd like to say, anything you'd like to promote, anything you'd like to close us with? No, not really. I'd, I'd like to say thank you uh, for asking me to do this. Um you know, if anyone's around Queens, you know, um, look up and wave. You'll, you might, I'll wave down <laughs> for, from being trapped in the lab doing nothing but research. Um, yeah, this has been fun. Awesome. One final wee thing then. Like, do you have your sights set on anything? Like, is there an area that you really want to dig your teeth into over the next, say, decade of your career? Or is there something that you really want to kind of get done, uh, you know, before you hang up the the white coat, as it were? Yeah. So, so I'm a, I'm actually leaving Queens um, in a couple of months, and I, I'm going to start my own research group at a different university. Um, and my research there will actually be looking at the damage viruses do to our lungs that we don't yet know about. Mm. So you know a lot of people now, obviously the, the thing at the minute is long COVID, yeah. but we know that viruses do other stuff to people's lungs. Um, and I want to basically figure out, can we stop that damage from happening? Can we stop things like asthma or long COVID or you know chronic lung disease? Um, so we'll see how it goes. Well, it's not started yet. Come, <laughs> come back in a few years and ask me then. <laughs> awesome. Well, Lindsay, thank you so much for your time today. Really loved that. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. And thank you so much to Queen's for making this one possible.